Welcome to Out of Order, a German martial fund podcast about how our world was, is, and will be ordered. My name is Peter Sparding, and together with Rachel Tausenfreund in Berlin, I will be hosting this episode, which is a part two to an episode we recorded a while ago when we looked at what to watch out for in 2019. We are joined today by another fellow here at GMF, Amy Studdard. Hi, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me back. And of course, Rachel is with us in Berlin. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Peter. Hi, Amy. In our last episode, we already took a bit of a look ahead at the year 2019. We're now a month in, but we still have a lot of ground to cover. So we thought we'll talk a bit about what we think is worth looking at in Europe, in the US and around the globe. And we'll start by looking at developments in Europe. So Rachel, since you're over there, tell us what you think is worth looking at in the next year. There's a lot to watch in Europe. There's elections in Poland that'll happen in the fall. It's got a kind of poetry to it because it's the 30-year anniversary of 1989. And the Polish elections in June of 1989 were a pretty important kickstart of the revolution and the fall of the wall. This year you have new elections and maybe not quite as important as 1989, but pretty important. In the last elections, the Law and Order Peace Party, they won an outright majority and that gave them quite a bit of power to do a lot of reforms, including the judicial reforms that have been viewed pretty harshly in Europe. And this time it looks like they probably won't get an outright majority, but it'll be a really important contest in Poland. So that's one important thing to watch both in Poland, but really for Europe. Of course, Brexit, right? You can't talk about the EU and 2019 without talking about Brexit. Amy, I know you have enthusiastic thoughts about Brexit. <laughs> When Brexit happened, I was so distraught that I think I cried for about a week. Um, and it was really interesting because at the time around the referendum, I was writing these long emails and having these long conversations with my friends and family about why they shouldn't vote for Brexit. And most of them were planning on voting for it. So unlike a lot of people who operate in our sphere, I think I was expecting it to happen. Um, and it was interesting to be back home at Christmas and to be back with all of these people who had been considering voting for Brexit, right? And I get to the UK on the day in which Gatwick has been shut down for two days because of drones that I don't think we've still figured out what they were. Um, And all the Brexit stuff is going on, and I go home, and people are just distraught, right? Like, the sense of national shame about Gatwick, about Brexit, about Gatwick as a symbol of the fact that this country can't get anything together. There's no hope for anything. Everyone's really depressed about all of the sort of all of the knock-on effects that they're already starting to see. Um, the London housing market is completely stale at the moment. Nothing is getting sold. That's sort of true across the entire economy. So it's just a real shift from this framework that led to the vote for Brexit, which was, you know, Britain is a great country. We have our own culture. We're a proud country. We want to be able to exercise the freedom to bring about our national identity more fulsomely to now when people are just sort of ashamed of what's going on. Would you say a lot of the people that you knew who were leavers would change their vote if a second referendum came? Because nobody knows what's going to happen, but a second referendum seems possible. 
And three weeks ago, five weeks ago, I don't think a lot of people thought it was possible. And suddenly it seems possible. I mean, do you know people who would really change their vote? I, I think most people would change their vote that I know, and I can't speak for the entire country, obviously. Take my grandparents as an example. My grandparents grew up in a framework in which they're a middle-class family. They worked really hard to move from a working class to a middle-class family. They become a middle-class family. All of their children leave the country, move to the Philippines or New Zealand or uh, the Caribbean. They're grandchildren all have left the country, their church gets shut down, and they just want to go back to the way that things were, right? They just want to go back to a version of their retirement that sees their family around them and is something that they understand and in which their church doesn't get shut down. And they think that the UK joining the EU and sort of globalization in general is responsible for that. And I think that what's happened in the wake of the vote is that the reality of what it is, is that, I mean, my grandparents now know that their children would never come home to this and their grandchildren would never come back to the UK for this. And there's just a sense of the promise that was there in the Brexit vote. We're now seeing the reality of the fact that that was just nonsense. I've been following the debate as best as I can. And I think I've seen some polling that suggests there's a slight change in voting behavior in a second referendum, but it wouldn't be super overwhelming, I think. But that always depends a bit on what options you give people and how you phrase the question, of course. The most fascinating thing about the whole thing is that it's now been more than two years and there's not been an, a real reckoning with some of the clear contradictions in the situation. So we're now, what, a few weeks away from uh, the UK leaving the European Union and Really, it's quite astonishing that no one has yet a clear plan of how this is going to happen, including the risk that there might just be a hard Brexit. And when the referendum happened, that was seen as absolutely impossible as an outcome. It's a, an interesting tale also in how the most developed political system, if you want to say, has not been able to cope with this question yet. What's interesting about Brexit, or I, interesting isn't the right word, shocking, really, we're, we're two months out and we have no idea what's going to happen. Rachel, can I ask you how, if at all, this is debated in Berlin? I know Germany has been dealing with its own issues over the last few months, especially the looming end of the Merkel era and so on. But in my view from over here, it looks like Germany is just now waking up to the reality of this Brexit actually potentially happening and what it might mean. It's, it's a weird situation in Germany. On the one hand, I think you're right. People are now starting to think, oh, this is real. I think the belief in some kind of redo of the referendum that would just erase this whole trouble was perhaps stronger in a lot of continental Europe than it was elsewhere. On the other hand, people are already tired of it and it's so complicated and confusing and nobody knows what's going on. So they're sort of ignoring it the whole time and yet are completely tired of it. So it's this weird mixture of ignoring it still but being slightly scared. And of course, there is some element of, I mean, I've heard a number of surveys being talked about. I mean, the business community is, is obviously worried. They find it very regrettable. But the general line is they will suffer much more than we will. Yeah, I, I, the way it was put to me once in, in Berlin by an official was Brexit is the worst thing to happen to us except for the potential dismembering of the entire EU. So the priority is to keep the EU 
together at all costs. So I think something that is clear in the in the position. I think now there's a feeling, even if the UK were to stay in the EU, that it's clear that it doesn't really want to be or it likes a large share. So it would constantly be a source of further disunion or so. So there are many people who are now wondering what would you be willing to give up to keep the UK the way it is currently set up in the union. Although, of course, as you said, most people would still prefer that outcome. I mean, if there was a referendum, it would have three choices, right? It would have remain... No deal Brexit, so hard Brexit, or this deal. The public, the PR element of it wouldn't be so strong, I think. This would be the fair referendum to have. The case for a second referendum is the first time around it was stay in the EU or exit with some vaguely great deal. And now people are at least making a real choice between two realities, neither of which are perfect and pretty and hark back to 19th century prestige and power, but they're equally realistic. So yeah, I mean, that's Brexit, which is the biggest mess. Closer to home, though, it's also going to be an interesting year for Germany. Peter, you know, there's um, elections coming up, right? I mean, not in the early part of the year, but important elections in 2019. Yeah, you have the um, European Parliament elections, of course, all over Europe, but uh, they also kind of play a role, of course, in, in Germany. And then in the fall, you have elections in a number of states in East Germany. And of course, the governing parties are, especially the Social Democrats, are pretty worried about the results there because they've not been doing well last year in many elections and uh, has put a lot of pressure internally in, on the um, party leadership. And people are expecting this to not be a good outcome. So there's always the the debate in the background whether the overall, uh, the federal government coalition between the Social Democrats and Angela Merkel's CDU can hold um, if there are more electoral failures for the Social Democrats. There is at the end of the year also what they have called kind of a, a breaking point in the overall coalition agreement in 2017 or 18, I should say, early 18, the parties put in um, some sort of uh, review process at the end of 2019. So if there were to be some sort of dissolution of the government, that would be the natural point where that could happen. And then on the other hand, the CDU seems to have somewhat caught itself, at least in the polls. They're back above 30% now after having settled their leadership uh, question in early December. There may be a bit more uh, relaxed. Of course, they still have a, a lot of work to do in bringing in the significant chunk of the conservative wing of their party that's a bit disappointed by not only the era Merkel, but also by the uh, election of her chosen successor, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, to the party leadership. So I think they're not completely out of the woods yet, but they're at least percentage-wise in a, in a territory that we would call a, a big party, whereas the Social Democrats are somewhere around 15% and are now behind the Greens in most polling and on par with the right-wing populists. So they're more thinking about existential threats. So that's kind of the outlook from the way I see it in, in Germany. Yeah, I would say it's interesting, right? Because as you said, the biggest popular party right now, the Christian Democrats. Angela Merkel stepped down as party chair. We had a we had a podcast about this late in the year. And in December, the question of succession became clear. Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who I'm going to call AKK from now on because it's too difficult, she won this kind of three-person contest. So this is also the year to see what kind of leadership direction she's going to take for the conservative party coalition in Germany. So I think that'll be interesting. I would, I would say already she's positioning herself a little bit more conservatively than Merkel, even though everyone saw her as the kind of natural Merkel 
2.0, this will be interesting. So first of all, there's Akaka, how she's positioning herself. And then, as you said, these elections, including in Sachsen, which I believe is called Saxony in English, where in the Bundestag elections, I mean, the AfD, the right-wing sort of nationalist party, won the majority. That'll be the real test if the CDU new leadership can sort of edge back some of that. And then, of course, what this all means for European politics, if the coalition is is weak, as, it, as I think it's going to be. I mean, hopefully the worst of the spats are over, but if half of the coalition is struggling at some third or fourth tier level in the polls, it's it's going to be a bit of a mess. Right. At the same time, that is, of course, a strong incentive not to have any sort of new elections. <laughs> yeah. We'll avoid elections and we'll just do nothing. I mean, yeah, you mentioned already the European impact. And I think, you know, it's obviously a lot happening in France. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it seems unlikely that major steps will be forthcoming on the European stage. Amy, what are you looking at otherwise in Europe other than Brexit? Um, I mean, I'm really focused on this question of Russian disinformation attempts. And so obviously the big challenges there are certainly going to be the European Parliament elections, but also um, Moldova is having elections in February, um, much of which is taking place, the discussion about around which is taking place on Facebook. And Ukraine is having two sets of elections, both presidential and parliamentary this year. Of course, you know, Ukraine has been the site of Russian disinformation for a very long time, a lot longer than we've been talking about it, for sure. It'll be interesting to see how, especially in the lead up to 2020 here, it'll be interesting to see what the Russians do, certainly in Ukraine, also in Moldova, because those elections are often, I mean, both countries matter in their own right, but Russia usually tries out its tactics in Ukraine and then deploys them elsewhere. You mean like a test run? Yeah, it's like a test run. Oh, great. So you have a lot of focus on Ukraine, especially at the moment from the tech companies and from the community of people trying to combat disinformation because we're just trying to figure out what Russia's going to get up to and trying to adjust our strategies around that. So that'll be really interesting to, to see. Our colleague Jörg Forbrig in the online text What to Watch piece, he pointed to Ukraine and the elections in Ukraine and the air quote elections in Belarus and that he He fully expects there to be not only in kind of disinformation and cyber activities, but also in actual aggression on the ground, a step up in 2019. Still, it'll probably stay under some kind of really dramatic threshold, but we should expect more on the ground efforts and aggression from Russia. That's scary. I mean, if you consider also Ukraine's been sort of suffering through this low level war on the edges of Europe since 2014, it's a sad outlook for 2019. It's also quite interesting because, and certainly in the case of Ukraine, obviously the U.S. government through its aid programs and so on is doing a whole bunch of work in Ukraine trying to help protect the elections as much as possible. But there's not very much political attention on it for obvious reasons here. And then on the Brussels end, certainly there have been efforts to secure the European elections, but Brussels hasn't been able to do anything politically vis-a-vis Ukraine either beyond sort of basic levels of assistance. And so it's really sort of the aid community, the development community, and the tech companies who are there doing all of this work. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not those efforts work without the high level of political attention that this kind of thing would have had a few years back. Yeah, that will be interesting then if, if as you describe it, it's a bit of a test run, not only for the Russian side, but also then maybe for tech companies and, and others who are going to look at this and then especially look at this in the context of upcoming elections in the US. And speaking of which, maybe we should shift a bit and talk about what, what we think is going on here. The way I, I think about it, you know, when I look ahead of 2019 to kind of think about what, what we can expect in the US, I think there's a few ways to, to think about it. One is the kind of on the day-to-day -day developments. I don't think we can expect much in terms of 
policy discussion or legislation. I mean, that's not a big reveal. I think no one expected that. You know, even in good times, divided government not set up for this. The incentive structure is, is completely backwards on that. So then uh, you put on top of that the, that this is a very unique situation and uh, high heightened polarization, of course. So I think on the day-to-day stuff, we'll be lucky uh, if the government continues to be open. And then, of course, there's a, a lot of things that completely fly under the radar that government does that will hopefully continue or can continue, uh, and even that Congress does, that uh, all the things that are not in any way salient as an issue do get passed. They, you know, So we, we should keep quiet about them so that they don't become salient. But anyway, so that will continue. But in, in terms of major, there's not going to be grand bargains as some people in media and so still, or I think some people even in the White House still think can be achieved on immigration. So I really doubt that that would happen simply because the incentive structures for either side is, is not given on this. So then the other part of that on a day-to-day basis, of course, the question of the investigations and what will come out of them. I We don't know how it's going to play out, but with Democrats now also running their own investigations in the House or any results of investigations from the special counsel potentially actually having some consequences given Democratic majorities in the House. I think that's going to step up in intensity, and that's probably where a lot of the focus will go. Um, secondly, I okay, think— Okay, wait. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump yeah. in there because I have a maybe foolish, but a small—I saw a small note of optimism at the end of the shutdown, sort of the last week. Obviously, nothing about the shutdown was positive or optimistic, but— Trump's poll numbers, also among his base and Republicans and people who are watching Fox News, they went down, meaning reality does or can, in extreme circumstances, enter that realm enough for even the most hardcore fans to sort of have to confront reality. Because my fear had always been, because we're talking about impeachment, and after this, I'm going to make you both predict yes, no on impeachment this year, but I had been sort of afraid, or I still am, that even if there is an impeachment or there are just, let's say, House investigations that turn up real things, that will have the problem that, you know, mainstream media, left-wing media, all of this will cover it, and the other media, the MAGA media, just won't. And so that you won't have any impact in his approval ratings, in sort of pressure from the Republican base to react to anything an investigation would turn up. So the positive note for me was, okay, there's still some shared reality. It might only be like five or 10%, but it's an important five or 10% of shared reality in the country. And that might be the essential five or 10% once, you know, let's say the Mueller probe releases actually something. I mean, you know, releases a report or investigations lead to something. I feel um, like these are the most complex mathematics I've ever heard to get to a tiny <laughs> bit of optimism, which is making me much more depressed. Thank well, you, I, can, I think I can, I can give you a, a, a short answer. Yes, the poll numbers went down at the end of the shutdown, which is part of the reason I think it came to a close. I think one thing to remember is Trump's poll numbers, which have been historically bad, are still where they are in economically overall good times. So many presidential observers have actually pointed this out. If the circumstances, if there are major disasters, if the economy tanks, or if you shut down the government for five weeks, yeah, of course, as soon as there's real impact, there will be some movement. And he has a very strong base, but that's not the 40% approval. You know, that's probably 20 to 30. And then there's an add-on to that. Which is now we come to the point of, will there be an impeachment 2019? I'm getting you on the record. Peter, what do you think? 
I think it's safe to assume. Start with the proposition that there won't be, or at least not a successful one, and then you go from there. I mean, that's just the the strong polarization and strong numbers. Unless the unless his uh, Trump's polling actually goes down significantly and Republican senators become nervous about it, and that would mean another ten percent down or so. I don't think that seems very likely. On the other hand, this is the first time in a while that major publications uh, have come out actually advocating for impeachment just on the merits. And that seems to be some movement, so it it could well be. But I've long given up figuring out the future here. (laughs) Amy? So I think that the only thing that's consistent at the moment is chaos. Um, (laughs) And I think that we're going to get a lot more of it. I mean, we're seeing those sort of sensible guard around Trump is all quitting. People in the government who are just trying to do their jobs can't do their jobs either because, you know, there's a shutdown, so they literally can't do their jobs or because they're coming afoul of the White House or because the White House is undercutting them. Um, So I think that we're going to see more and more chaos. And it's hard to know what will happen from that. If there's something truly terrible that happens, perhaps then you have more case for impeachment, but perhaps it's just all focused on, you know, the same domestic political stories that keep coming out all the time that I think all of us are bored of. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even yeah. those of us who love politics are just bored yeah, of it. Not this I'm kind like, of politics. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, maybe on the on that note, the other side, of course, just to briefly mention it, the quite amazingly for European observers or ears, the primary on the Democratic side has already started. Um, so almost oh, two years before the election, many people have announced, and I think we're expecting a field of up to probably around 30 credible candidates, which is, you know, huge, but also a good indication that most of them think the next election is a good chance for a win. So uh, because if this was a popular presidency, people with long-term plans for their career might not run this time. But anyway, I think that's the other interesting side. Of course, it's going to be intertwined because there's a lot of senators running and so on with the actual, what I just described as day-to-day stuff, scandals and so on here in D.C. But Broadly, the primary is the is also the way the other party has to figure out its alternative vision for the country. So we clearly have seen that there's a lot of energy uh, among especially younger, non-white groups in the on the democratic base. So there's we'll we'll see what that means for the development of the program and which candidates come forward. But I think that's kind of the debate on that side. You know, how how progressive, how far out you're going to go. Some people immediately get nervous about this and think you should play it safe. So that's on the other side. I don't know. No predictions there. And I personally think it's way too early to engage with that, but just to keep an eye on that at least. Sure. I think we won't be able to avoid it even if we wanted to. uh, Even even if we wanted to not pay attention, that's going to be a big story. I just really want like a boring candidate who's not at all charismatic but is really competent (laughs) and isn't going to generate any news except for like oh we passed the budget on time right the problem (laughs) with that is that's almost impossible because the base of the other party will demand that candidate to say things on a number of issues that are not boring and also in relationship to the president and of course one thing the president is looking forward to is having an opponent to attack um Right now, he barely has, he only has the media really as a, and that's why he's still every other week or so writing about Hillary Clinton. But of course, that's 
you know, the only that's his his style is going to wait to see that. So I, sorry, <laughs> I don't think we're going to have a boring campaign. I, I with you. I wish we did, but that seems unfortunately unlikely. Yeah, like the campaign in Germany last time around, and there was the de- debate between Merkel and Schulz, and they kept agreeing with each other and being like, "Yes, that is a very." I would have to agree with that, but I would just add this small detail. I mean, yeah. completely boring. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the the other thing that maybe leads us to our third point is that I think one thing to look forward or not forward to, but look out for is that, you know, what U.S. presidents often do when they are faced with a divided government or a stalemate and can't get their agenda through at home is that they become a bit more active on foreign policy or around the globe to show that they are still in charge. And that's, of course, an area where U.S. presidents have unique powers. So, I don't know that there's a strategy from this president in this regard, but, you know, we have seen him schedule another summit with uh, North Korea. And, of course, there is always the potential for some sort of um, crisis, I mean, you know, with Iran or or something. If you look at this from a transatlantic perspective, I think we we might also see some more um, uh, developments on that front. And maybe that's a good segue to discuss a bit broader issues, what, you know, that's that's the thing we can expect from the U.S. side on foreign policy. Maybe I don't know. Uh, who knows these days? But what does the rest of the world uh, do in the next year? And and does it even care about what is going on in Europe and the U.S. as we just discussed? So I think that this is where I find my optimism. So I think that this has been a really good test for democracy as a system and the faith that people have in democracy as a system, right? So is democracy, um, do people, do countries adopt in democracy and practice democracy because of Pax Americana and U.S. leadership and the European model? Or is there, a, are there sort of localized demands for democracy? And so sure, we've seen resurgent authoritarianism, but the things that have given me hope have been the, the spaces in which, you know, democracy has just at a local level, really been thriving all around the world. And people just want their lives to get better, right? And they want to organize to improve their communities. Um, And so you look at the Maldivian election last year, for instance, where they threw out an authoritarian leader who came about in a coup. And now it's, you know, back to being a basically functioning democracy. Um, And I think that as I've been dealing with folks around the world, actually the, the fear that, Brexit and Trump and all of the horror stories coming out of Europe um, would damage democracy as a brand hasn't come to pass. Wow, that is optimistic and positive. (laughs) The only thing in the last half hour. (laughs) I'm I'm tempted to immediately stop the podcast so we can end on a high (laughs) note, but I don't think we we can. So, but let me ask you then, what do you, um, do you think that, these developments that you just described, are they growing and, and spreading into other countries and we're just not noticing it as much because we're so busy with our own strange situations and that's what gives you hope or or what's the, is this just individual, you know, countries that, that have these developments? I think, I mean, obviously democracy is not on the rise, right? When you look at all of the data in various different ways, democracy is not on the rise. Um, but I think that what hasn't happened is that people have looked at the U.S. and Europe and gone, oh, well, it's terrible and we shouldn't have the system. We should just have authoritarian leaders. I think instead what you've had is at a grassroots and local level, people are demanding more power, not less. 
Um, and there's a question about how that power manifests. So I think, um, you know, we've seen, uh, you're just seeing in, you're seeing very volatile politics all around the world. Um, but the, the thing that people are looking for is not to relinquish their own power. I think people have got sufficiently used to the idea that they should be able to protest freely. They should be able to say what they like on their Facebook pages or, you know, in, through whatever mechanism they want to speak, um, that they should be a part of governing their societies. Um, and so the Maldives is the most optimistic example, but I think that you're seeing cause for hope at a local level in the Philippines, in Venezuela with all the protests, in Brazil, in Nicaragua. You just have a lot of really empowered people uh, at a local level. Now they need international support, mm -hmm. right? Like human rights groups in the Philippines or, you know, Rappler, Maria Ressa, who is the founder of Rappler, um, which is this great Filipino media organization, was arrested. And you need the international community to then put pressure on the Duterte regime so that someone like that gets released and it doesn't dampen, it doesn't increase the risks for human rights activists and free speech activists um, to the point that their capacity to be those things is dampened. So the international support element is definitely missing, and that's very concerning. Mm. But the local level appetite, the appetite from the people, is still there. Got it. So you're arguing from like the individual, the individuals are still following this path. In my quest to make you more pessimistic, let me ask you. I'm just going to leave. <laughs> no, this is not really my quest. I'm, but let me ask you maybe a two two part question uh, in this regard so what are the risks to this um by either growing or the revival so to speak of the great power conflicts you know increasing tensions between the US and China and then the second where you're also uniquely uh, qualified to speak to this is the question of tech you mentioned early in our segment the disinformation issues in uh, Moldova and other places but we also had of course the big examples of in Asia, where Facebook is, I think, in many places, a, one, if not the major communications tool. And then I think in Brazil, it's WhatsApp or something. So what are the risks in that regard? That, And, and how likely are they to be positively answered? Yeah. Um, so those are both big questions. I think on the great power politics, I think that we can get lost in this idea of China-U.S. competition when actually China is just as self-obsessed as the U.S. is, right? And everyone is focused on the domestic condition um, and the domestic situation. China's domestic politics are not as delightful as we seem to think that they are. In <laughs> no, no means. Yeah. Um, when we characterize them. But they are playing a really significant role internationally um, and related to your second question, you know, as you see uh, social media and the sort of democratic version of the internet, I say that, um, maybe that's not the right phrase, but, you know, the, the companies that came up in democracies where freedom of speech has reigned supreme with very negative consequences in, say, a Myanmar or an India or Philippines, um, Brazil, um, What you have, on the other hand, is China coming along and saying, well, look at our cybersecurity law. Um, look at our capacity to shut down the internet. Um, and those things seem, on the surface, like a good response to a very bad 
set of dynamics. Uh, but they're anti-democratic, right? They put more and more control in the hands of the government. They include surveillance of populations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that one of the problems right now is that democracy doesn't have a good answer. Obviously, the present situation is not tenable. We can't continue to have our companies facilitating genocides um, or, you know, uh, in the Indian case, you know, ethnic violence right. um, or bringing about the leadership of people like Duterte. Um, and the companies, I think, are uh, certainly trying to deal with it, but they can't They can't be the arbiters of what, where does freedom of speech butt up against hate speech, mm. where who should have an account and who shouldn't. Um, and they're being asked to right now because the U.S., you know, there's no international leadership around this discussion that says, here are their international standards. Uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and uh, WhatsApp and even the Chinese companies that are springing up and the Russian companies, social media companies that are springing up should all adhere to this code of conduct. We've set forward the rules. So, um, so if you take, for instance, Myanmar, um, what you had in Myanmar was, you know, Facebook did not take that threat seriously enough, but they were then asked. What just to back up to a sec, uh, back up one second for those listening. What did they not take seriously enough? The violence against the Rohingya, or so Myanmar, country that has no internet connection, no real sort of literacy programs, etc. All of a sudden, everybody's online. Everybody has a cell phone connection. Media literacy is non-existent. And you introduce into that something like Facebook, right? Um, so it's not a developed information society. And then you put Facebook in. So what happened was you were seeing all of this extremist content that was advocating for, you know, burning down Rohingya houses, violence against Rohingya, saying that, you know, a Rohingya man had raped a Buddhist woman, all of this kind of stuff circulating on the platform. Various people creating it. In some cases, um, it was assumed that it was just, you know, extremist Buddhist monks uh, and ordinary people sharing all of this. It then turned out that the junta had played a major role in it um, and was spreading a lot of the information. But in the meantime, you had people who were saying to Facebook, look, this is a really serious problem. You're stoking these the flames of ethnic violence here and people are dying. Uh, and Facebook never really formed a coherent response. And I think that one of the challenges here is that Myanmar and Facebook land is this tiny user base, right? Like really tiny. It doesn't really matter to Facebook, but Facebook really mattered to Myanmar. Um, and so they didn't have the people focused on the issue. So is the question not why, if it doesn't even matter to Facebook, shouldn't Facebook think about going into a country or figuring out a country before they go into the country, then they, then they wouldn't be faced with the individual questions that they don't have the capacity to handle in the end. So, I mean, that, you know, that's maybe the lesson now. But that seems to be, I think, some of the critique is that they just went on this expansion trip without really figuring out what it might mean in individual countries and thought this would just be the same as in Western Europe or in so I think yes. this is one of the other challenges for democracy, right? So you have the entire tech ethos is to have products and policies that are scalable. So you're not creating a, pro a policy or a product for every single market. Um, and so Facebook comes up with its community standards. It comes up with its rules. And that's supposed to be globally applicable. Whereas one set of rules and standards might 
operate quite well in a developed democracy with a developed inter- information infrastructure. It doesn't necessarily translate in a place with uh, su- serious ethnic strife um, that doesn't have the same kind of media and digital literacy. Um, and so you have you have this scalability question with these policies and community standards set in Palo Alto that are then applied in Myanmar and wherever else. And there's no flexibility about that, right? It would completely upend the entire philosophy of how technology companies operate. And so I think that what you need somewhere in the middle is some, you know, organization that has some democratic accountability that is saying, here are what the standards should be. Here's how you, where you obey local laws and here's where you don't because it confronts your basic democratic philosophy or whatever. But that doesn't exist and there's no sign that it's going to be created. So you have companies like Facebook suggesting that they're going to create a Supreme Court for content, which is completely insane, right? A company creating a Supreme Court about what speech is permissible and isn't. It might be an indication that it It's too big for its own good. Yeah, that that does seem problematic. Okay, so to just make the small connection to looking ahead to 2019, and without wanting you to necessarily make a prediction, but this problem that you're pointing to, do you think this will be the year where we just get more cognizant of these problems? You know, we see these things popping up more and we understand, oh, we need an answer. Or do you think we'll start to see small bits of answers arising or or at least starts to answers? Um, I don't think that we're going to see answers. I think that the companies are doing the best that they can in the context, right? But they're in reaction mode. All of this stuff has happened or happening, and they're trying to figure out how to stem the bleeding. And I think that the philosophical questions that I just laid out, they're all aware of them. And so there's this real reckoning about what the role of these companies should be when they're global And, you know, they're more influential in many societies than are the governments of those societies. Um, and I, I don't, I think that this is such a big question. And we've, when we've dealt with similarly big questions in the past, we've developed new political systems. When the printing press happened, it completely upended the way that politics and society had worked. And we're not anywhere near being able to deal with that. And we also then, you know, there was lots of strife and Terrible things happened in wars and starvation when we've had similar technological changes. Uh, all of this is happening so quickly that we aren't going to be able to deal with it in a meaningful time frame. You've really made me go pessimistic again, right? I was just going to give you the, the way out, but are you overall optimistic to end this episode on a positive note that we will be able to accommodate these changes? I don't think that we're even reckoning with them. Great. So that was my attempt to end on an optimistic note, almost successful. So let me thank uh, Amy for joining us. And of course, as always, uh, Rachel in Berlin. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We're going to wrap this discussion here, but we have more for our listeners. Right now, we're going to include some contributions from colleagues all across our organization to hear what they are looking out for in 2019. In 2019, Europe faces a full slate of elections. Canada holds parliamentary elections. And the 2020 U.S. presidential campaign kicks off in earnest. The technological tools authoritarian regimes use to interfere in democracies are advancing rapidly. And yet, policymakers and legislators are largely consumed by yesterday's problems, like the use of bots on open social media platforms. 
Digital manipulation in 2019 will differ from information operations waged against transatlantic countries over the past several years. Deep fake technology, that is, the doctoring of audio and video clips that make them difficult to decipher as inauthentic, as well as machine learning, the explosion of closed encrypted chat platforms, and improvements in bot sophistication will make disinformation easier to amplify and more difficult to detect and counter. Leaving the tech companies alone to address emerging developments in computational propaganda and authoritarian interference is no longer an option. Cliché as it may sound, governments, civil society, and the private sector all have a stake in greater collaboration. Whether that happens in 2019 remains to be seen. In the Middle East, the overwhelming imperative for 2019 is ending the Yemen war the most urgent humanitarian catastrophe and the worst famine in a century, in which an estimated 85,000 children have starved to death since 2015. The future of the military campaign in Yemen depends mostly on the Saudi Arabia-led coalition. The Khashoggi affair has managed what hard-wrenching pictures of starving Yemeni children have not, to bring Western scrutiny of its tacit alliance with the Saudi regime to a possible tipping point. The gruesome murder of Khashoggi appears to have opened lawmakers' eyes to the Yemen war as a power-hungry youngster's senseless rampage no one in the West now wants to be linked to. Pressure has also mounted on Western governments to stop arms sales that fuel the conflict. In 2019, Russia will continue its militarization of the Black Sea on the Sea of Azov. Russia's intention is to complete its Azov fleet by adding 50 military and patrol ships. And it also wants to add at least one modernized large missile boat and 70 new warships to its Black Sea fleet. Twelve of these warships will support nuclear-capable missiles. Further provocations of and incidents with Ukrainian ships are also to be expected in the Sea of Azov and in the Kerch Straits. Russia needs to control both the Straits and the Azov Sea for strategic and practical reasons, to maintain domination of both Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, and to ensure its various supplies to um, both of these regions. As in the past five years, NATO response, on the other hand, will be limited by the divergent interests and approaches of the littoral states, and by the reactions of NATO member states to the complicated Ukrainian domestic politics, this and the strict regulations of the Montreux Convention will continue to work in Russia's favor, and this will continue its military buildup basically unabated. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. The hosts are Peter Sparding and Rachel Tausenfreund. And a special thanks to Albin Bochon and Marie Lowell for production assistance.